Well, good morning. I almost managed to hit the high notes in our Sunday school song. So maybe I did enough talking this morning before I got to church. If you'll turn to Acts 2, we're going to jump off of that text because it references breaking of the bread. And we're going to have to go elsewhere to learn more about that. Before we begin, please join with me in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be pleased with our worship here this morning and equip us to worship you by turning our affections to you through the truth that we would discover in your word, Lord, as we consider the ordinances and the means you've given to the church by which you mature the church, I ask that you would mature us. Be upon me as I pre- as I speak and uh, teach this lesson. Praise in your name, amen. So we look at Acts 2.42, <clears throat> again as our We've been considering these four things that the church devoted itself to, and uh, we looked first at how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which we contended was the Word of God, was the Old Testament and New Testament, was their eyewitness testimony the apostles had of the Lord Jesus' life, death, of his teachings. Uh, And then we looked last week at the fellowship, the koinonia, the... Um, Christians sharing all of their life with other Christians, which included um, also sharing of their material goods as their fellow believers had needs and uh, were in need of it. We protected that from the charge of um, a communistic economic system, which for some reason the progressive church wants to interject into that text. Uh, and into into this text, but the re- it, Scripture knows nothing of that. Uh, and today we're going to look at how they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And I will contend today that that is primarily the Lord's Supper. That, that is the commun- communion, the Lord's table, and that in the early church... It was joined to what was called the agape meal or the love feast, the agape feast. Um, But it was distinct and very quickly, even before the Apostle Paul is done writing the New Testament, there's already indication that it's beginning to be separated from that for abuses. And we'll go and we'll look at some some text to um, see that. What I... Want us to uh, see to today is that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the church, the keeping of which is one of the means by which the Lord has ordained for his people to be sanctified. It's an ordinance. Um, in church history, you may hear it referred to as a sacrament, and we, we, we prefer the, the term ordinance because it was ordained. We'll talk about that a little bit. Um, 
And when you keep it, you are sanctified. And so that's something we're going to have to answer is what is the means by which you're sanctified by keeping the Lord's table? And uh, if you're from a Roman Catholic background, you're going to have a view of that, or you will have had a view of that that's very different than the biblical view. And we'll talk about that. So first, let's look at the meaning of breaking of bread in Acts 2.42 and following. Then we're going to look at the different views of the Lord's Supper in church history. And then we're going to zero in on 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul um, reminds the church of what he received from the Lord about how to practice the Lord's Supper and the purpose of it. And that'll help us see what actually occurs when we are observing the Lord's Supper. And just to be totally upfront, I hold to what is called a memorial view of the Lord's Supper. So if you're wondering where I'm going to go, that is it. Um, but you'll see that there's that's not denying the presence of the Lord with his church. So let's look at the meaning of breaking of bread from Acts 2.42 and following. What we see here is that as they were breaking bread, it says in verse 42, but then it starts to explain that in 43 and following is you see that they had all things in common. Let's see here. They were day by day, verse 46, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, and they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So you notice how there, it doesn't seem like those are necessarily synonymous terms. Like why would, why would Luke inferring a little bit here, but why would Luke say that they're breaking bread from house to house and they're sharing their meals together? If breaking bread meant, you know, a potluck in and of itself, would we need to also indicate that they were potlucking? Um, so I think there's a distinction here between the meals that they would enjoy and what is termed the breaking of bread. Um, so I think this is really, uh, breaking of bread is referring primarily to the Lord's Supper, but the early church observed that in connection to the agape feast. And in Jude, to understand, as he's referring to the, um, the false teachers who have crept in unnoticed, these, um, ungodly people who are marked out beforehand for this condemnation. He says in verse 12, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. When you, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, these ungodly people that he's referring to, he's writing after, um, Peter Jude. When he writes, he says, I want to remind you what you learned um, that these men will creep in. And Peter says in chapter 2, because they're very similar um, in, in their content, that these men are coming. And Peter is foreshadowing. He, he's speaking of what's to come. Um, there will be false teachers among you, is what Peter says and Jude says. I want to remind you the words spoken beforehand by the apostles in our Lord Jesus Christ. They were saying to you in the last day there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. <clears throat> and so these people who had showed up that 
um, Jude is referring to, one of the things he marks, he points out about them is that they're caring for themselves, they're selfish, they're not providing anything for the body. They're only, um, their whole religion is about themselves, and so he calls them hidden reefs in your love feasts, and that's the agape meal. That's the, it would have looked like a potluck that either at the end of or at the beginning of would have had the Lord's Supper. And I don't know that um, there was necessarily a liturgy for when the Lord's Supper had to be observed on one end of the meal or the other. Um, but <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is talking about the proper observing of the Lord's Supper in relation to the love feast, the agape meal. And he says in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11, In giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. There must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. If you just think of how the Lord's Supper is observed, uh, you don't take an entire bottle of wine right back here that wouldn't have had you know, grape juice the way you think of it. There would have been at least a small alcoholic content, um, enough to where if you drank enough of it, you could get drunk off of it. Our grape juice is not going to do that. There's no alcoholic content in it whatsoever. Um, and so, so taking the Lord, he's not speaking here in these verses specifically about just observing the Lord's Supper. He's speaking of the meal with what the Lord's Supper would have been connected to. Because when you meet together, one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. And then he says at the end, in verse 33, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. He's not talking about observing the Lord's Supper privately, so that when you come together, it's already done, and you don't have to observe it corporately. There's this meal that it's connected to. So the abuse in the Corinthian church was the abuse of the love feast. And I think this is going off of memory. So I guess you'd have to look this up. Don't quote me on this. But I think Clement, who <clears throat> would have learned from, I think, the Apostle John um, and some of the earliest works we have that come from right around, I think First Clement was written in the 80s or 90s AD, so that would have been before Revelation even. Um, he's writing, uh, and he's also referring to how to properly observe the agape meal in part of his letter, if I'm thinking of that correctly. So already there's a, a distinction and a, and a, that needs to be made between the agape meal and the Lord's Supper because the the potluck, the meal, was providing an opportunity for the abuse of the Lord's Supper. In Acts 20, verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, 
we were gathered together to break bread. Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Uh, there's a couple things that are interesting here. It's the first day of the week they're gathering together to observe the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread. And it doesn't talk about them engage, having a whole meal, but it does mention that Paul uh, was going to give a message on that day. And for some reason he prolongs his message, but it's curious. The first day of the week, Lord's Supper and preaching. So what does that look like? That looks like Sunday worship. Uh, so if somebody wants to tell you from the early church, uh, they always worshiped on Saturday because that's the true Sabbath. There's a really good verse to say that's not how it was in the early church. They observed it on Sunday. Um, that was free. That wasn't about the Lord's Supper. But um, you'll notice that they that they observed um, to gather together. Their part of that reason was to break bread, uh, the breaking of bread, which seems to be a term for the Lord's Supper. So what is the meaning of breaking of bread? I don't know if I could go so far as to say it's a technical term for the Lord's Supper, but uh, in those contexts, and certainly is in these contexts, it's certainly talking about that. So I think in Acts 2.42, Luke is referring to observing the Lord's Supper, observing communion. So that is one of the things they devoted themselves to. Um <clears throat> So let's look at how the church historically has understood the Lord's Supper, really historically as in from A.D. 1500 and on, because we're going to go back to the Reformation and uh, how they rescued the Lord's Supper from the Catholics. So uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, the view is what is known as transubstantiation. This developed after the Middle Ages. Um, this developed really with, with Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas got some things right. He got this really wrong. Um, and some people love him. Some people hate him. He seems to be a polarizing figure. But he developed this um, doctrine of transubstantiation. And it's, it's the view that the Mass, which is what the Catholic Church calls the Lord's Supper, is a sacrifice by the Catholic priest of the body of Christ. Um, f- to obtain forgiveness of sins. So it is not a remembrance, primarily. It is a re-sacrifice. Now, they might say, well, it's not a re-sacrifice. It's continuing the sacrifice of Christ. Or something. They might have some you know, special way to try to get around the reality that what they're really teaching is that we crucify Christ again and again and again. Um, this just doesn't fit with the Bible. <clears throat> Can anyone think of, so this is, I'm asking for a response here. Can anyone think of any text in scripture that would help us understand that a concept of crucifying, of sacrificing the Lord over and over again is not biblical? It's yeah, that's just... That was the first one that came to mind. John 19.30. What did he say? It is finished. There's There no longer remains uh, sacrifice for sins. It is finished. Any others? Yeah, that's in Jude. Yep. 
once for all time is probably what that means. Yeah, that's very good. Any others? There's a whole book about this. Hebrews. Yeah, there's a lot in Hebrews. Um, so Hebrews 926, 10.10, 10.14, 10.18, All of those refer to the um, sufficiency of the one sacrifice of Christ. So if you go, Hebrews 10 is really helpful for this. Because <clears throat> he says in verse 1, the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. If you go to verse 10... By this, uh, by this will will we will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's pretty cut and dry. Verse fourteen: For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Okay, I guess that seems pretty clear. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no need. In, any longer, there's no longer any offering for sin. Excuse me. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering of sin. Verse 18 and verse 26. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, which clearly indicates that the sacrifice was once. Right. So if you want to see just a total dismantling, of the Catholic view, um, pick up John Calvin's Institutes and read um, Book 4, Chapter 18, which he calls the Papal Mass, a sacrilege by which Christ's Supper was not only profaned but annihilated. Uh, so he's pretty clear his intention in that chapter title. They really just fired a uh, full broadside whenever they wrote anything. Uh, back in those days. Uh, but he just dismantles it through and through. Uh, so <clears throat> the Catholic view does not work. It is not biblical. Okay. Uh, so if that just, if anyone's confused about that, or if you come out of a Roman Catholic background and you just want to be encouraged that that was the right thing to do and that the gospel does not um, allow for a Catholic view of the Mass. Just know that it does not. It is not biblical. The the cousin of uh, that view is the Lutheran view, which is usually referred to as consubstantiation. Um, and it sometimes it's referred to as the real presence. But that's a bit of a misnomer. Um consubstantiation, and Luther, he didn't like transubstantiation because he, he, he didn't like the idea of continually sacrificing the body of Christ. Um, he understood that that did violence to the doctrine of justification. But he felt that there was significance in the fact that the Lord says, this is my body. And if you remember, I'm just even thinking back to a history conference with, with Pastor Will teaching here. That I think, didn't he write on the table at the meeting with 
um, who do you meet with? Uh, Zwingli and was there wasn't there a reformed guy? Was it just Zwingli? And he kept like flipping the tablecloth over to say, "This is my body." As they're arguing about the Lord's Supper, because he wanted to take that so literally. But think about just other um, texts that that work. I think James Boyce was the one who mentioned uh, where he says he says about this is my body. He says that hardly decides the matter that it being a lit- that that needs to be a literal interpretation because such expressions occur frequently in the Bible with obviously figurative or, or representational meanings. For example, the seven good cows are seven years. You wouldn't take that to mean that the cows are actually years. You are the head of gold. The field is the world. The rock was Christ. The seven lampstands are the seven churches, as if the churches are lampstands. I am the door of the sheep. I am the true vine. Think of the other I am statements, not just I am the bread of life, um, which will also be appealed to by a number of people to say, see, he's, he's literally the bread. So, you know, we understand that there's representational or figurative language here. And when that's the clear, natural meaning of the text, there's no reason to try to force a, a literalistic meaning upon the text. So he said uh, in consubstantiation that Christ's body was around, within, or under, and was really there. And it imparts sanctifying grace. Um, there's a problem with this, which is that in order for that to work, that Christ's human body is literally present in some way in the elements, uh, then Christ's human body has to have divine qualities. And that actually breaks down the distinction between the divine nature of Christ and the human nature of Christ. And it blends them together. That's a huge problem. The implications of that are massive. So that doesn't work. One, because the text is clearly not, Jesus is is clearly not saying, understand this to be literally my body. Just from a straightforward reading of the text, we see that. But also, to take it that way would um, violate a number of doctrines that we have regarding the distinction between the divine nature and the human nature. The Reformed view is called the spiritual presence view. And I don't think this is too far off from us. They just maybe emphasize his presence in the elements in a way that we wouldn't. But Calvin said this about it. He said, It remains for all this to be applied to us. This was done through the gospel, more clearly through the sacred supper. And he'll refer to this as a sacrament because he used that language where he offers himself with all his benefits to us, and we receive him by faith. So notice, not by the action of eating, but by faith. Therefore, the sacrament does not cause Christ to begin to be the bread of life, but when it reminds us that he was made the bread of life, which we continually eat, he's thinking of we receive our spiritual nourishment and the sense of our vitality of our Christian life. Seems to be what he's thinking here. And which gives us a relish and a savor of that bread. It causes us to feel the power of that bread. It assures us that all that Christ did or suffered was done to quicken us, to make us alive. 
And again, that this quickening is eternal. We being ceaselessly nourished. So he's not tying that just to the eating the bread. Sustained and preserved throughout life by it. <clears throat> so the Reformed view, this was developed um, later by the Reformed scholastics. And then when you get to, to like the Westminster um, Confession of Faith and Catechism, they, there's all this weird jargon to refer to this. But it seems like the basic idea is that in the taking of the bread, there's a mystical reality where I am <clears throat> um, being sanctified in this. The Holy Spirit is using this to sanctify and impart sanctifying grace to me. But it's doing so not because there's something special about the elements, but because of the turning of my mind and my affections and my heart to the Lord in that time. So it's close to the memorial view, but they would put a, um, a spiritual emphasis on it that is honestly confusing when you're looking at it. Um, <clears throat> the memorial view, this is often called the Zwinglian view. I think this is the right view is this. Christ is always present with his church. That's number one. He's always present with his church. So the elements remain unchanged. He's spiritually present with his people. <clears throat> He's not in the elements in a special way, even spiritually. But his people are sanctified by the turning of their minds to what the Lord has done and will do, because it's... there's. Um, a remembrance and an expectation of um, him coming in the kingdom. Uh, that in the taking of the elements, it's a it's a tangible reminder of the gospel, and that is where the sanctification happens in our in us being turned to think about the work of Christ. I re- this is kind of a technical lesson. I realize that, but just bear with me here. Zwingli said this. To eat the body of Christ spiritually is equivalent to trusting with heart and soul upon the mercy and goodness of God through Christ. That is to have the assurance of an unbroken faith that God will give us the forgiveness of sins and the joy of eternal salvation for the sake of his son who gave himself for us and reconciled the divine righteousness to us. So he's, he's saying that in the eating of it, that there's a, the spiritual reality is that I'm, my, I'm turning my mind to the Lord to think about Him. And so I'm having the assurance of my faith in God, the forgiveness of sins that I have by the broken body and the spilt blood of Christ, the eternal salvation which I have through Him who gave Himself for me. So this view, the memorial view, is really distinct from the Reformed view, mainly in whether the element should be associated with the spiritual presence of Christ or whether the spiritual presence of Christ should be mainly thought of as with the people. And uh, I would say he should mainly be thought of as with the people. But the elements, their purpose is to turn our minds to the Lord. And where do we get that? Well, that's in our third section, which is to look at the sanctifying use of the Lord's Supper, and we'll go to 1 Corinthians 11 to consider that. I think as we go through this, we'll see that that memorial view makes the most sense.
what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 23. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The, I'd say the first use of the Lord's Supper, if I can even say it that way, <clears throat> which sanctifies us, or, or the Holy Spirit used to sanctify us, is turning our minds to remember the death of Christ. And you see that twice. In verse 24, do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in remembrance of me. So just right out of the te- right off the text here, what are we supposed to do when we partake in the Lord's Supper? We're to remember the Lord. To remember what about him? Well, my body, which is broken for you, and the new covenant in his blood. So you do remember the gospel. You remember what he accomplished. You remember the fact that he represented you. He took your place. He's your sin sacrifice. Your sin offering on the cross. You know, this is, this should be obviously sanctifying. Um, because the, the way you grow in the Christian life is not just by checking your progress and, you know, seeking to be obedient, but it's by turning your mind to consider the Lord and to rest in the work that He's done. Um, I, I would contend that even if you look through 1 John, you'll see that while He's continually bringing you back to look at yourself, the over and over again, he's considering what Christ has done for you. So he's, his, it's, you're not just coming back to look at yourself, but you're looking at yourself and looking at Christ and looking back up at Christ and getting your gaze actually onto what Christ has done and just right out of the gate in first John, you know, if that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, his son. <clears throat> we are, Sanctified as we think about the Lord, as we know the Lord, as we come to understand the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 3, you don't have to turn here, I'll just reference it here. He's talking about reading the word of God. And he references Moses, who has a veil over, who had a veil over his face. Um, and he says in verse 14 of that chapter that until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. She's talking about the reading of the Word of God in the Jewish synagogues, that because they don't know Christ, that there is a blindness to the Word of God. But when they know Christ, it says a veil lies over their hearts. But in verse 16, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So then in verse 18, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, just as from the Lord, the spirit where in that context, where are you beholding the Lord in scripture? In the truth that is, would be read in scripture that you can now understand because you've turned to the Lord. So the veil is taken off of your heart and you're able to understand the truth. The sanctification comes from thinking about meditating on, dwelling on, and knowing the Lord. So what does the Lord's Supper provide for us in the remembrance of him? It provides that opportunity for the Lord to um, sanctify us, and he will sanctify us by us turning to and remembering what he has done for us. The next use, so that would be remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. The next use is that it provides an opportunity for us to be examining our hearts and confessing our sin. And this is where Paul, I think, is driving in the text and considering the, the context where he's just said, you're coming together and you're not considering each other. You're making this all about your own um, selfish pleasure, um, getting full, um, there's a kind of gluttonous revelry. And he says, therefore, verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. So if you just take that charge there, that, that instruction, you'd say when we come to partake of the Lord's Supper, first thing we need to do is examine ourselves. There is a trend uh, all across um, the conservative church. That's just what I know. It may be broader than that. But to um, examine yourself, find yourself to not be perfect, and so pass on partaking in the Lord's Supper. And I actually don't think that's good. I think that is not good. Maybe it's a clearer way to say that. Uh, Paul doesn't say, examine yourself, and if you pass the examination, partake. What does he say in verse 28? Examine yourself, and in so doing, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The, the use of the, of the communion table is that it provides a, a check for you to consider your conduct Repent of the sin you've practiced and confess your sin to the Lord and then eat and drink and be reminded of the fact that he paid for those sins and there is forgiveness in those sins. So I think that uh, you should examine yourself, but don't just destroy yourself with the law but be reminded of the gospel that he saved you. He died for you. He spilled his blood for you. And if you're believing that and trusting in that, then confess your sin, um, throw yourself fully upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus, and eat and drink and have those tangible reminders of what he did for you. Um, and how could that not be sanctifying? How could that not be encouraging? Um, Michael... Hyken or Haken, uh, I think he's a Presbyterian, but he had this, which I thought was good, even though he'd probably hold to a Reformed view of the Lord's Supper. He says, Participation in the Lord's Supper enables believers to grasp more firmly 
all that Christ has done for them through his death on the cross. In this way, the Lord's Supper is a means of spiritual nourishment and growth. It um, provides the opportunity for you to grow as your mind is turned to the Lord. The last thing that I just came up with these three uses. Uh, there may be more, but the last use that that I see right out of this text at first glance is in verse 26, which is that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So everybody who eats and drinks when they partake in communion is preaching. Uh, it's the same word uh, for preaching. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, who are you proclaiming the gospel to? Just the, yourself and your fellow brothers and sisters, right? Because the Lord's table is not open to unbelievers. It's, it's for believers. So when you think about that, you think, well, I think of preaching the Lord's death. I think of that as primarily being useful for unbelievers to have an opportunity to hear the gospel, repent and believe, and join the family, right? But this just would be one more evidence that I would point to to say no, the, the sanctifying use of the Lord's Supper is it turns our minds to the gospel because we need the gospel continually in order to grow. So when you eat and drink um, in communion... You are proclaiming the truth of the Lord's death, the um, sufficiency of the Lord's death, the maybe even you could say the finality, the fact that it was done once for all uh, of the Lord's death. And you're proclaiming that to yourself, but also to your brothers and sisters around you, the church, when it comes together and partakes of the Lord's Supper is corporately committing itself to the sufficiency of the gospel message. And the there's just one more that actually just came to mind right now, which is that when the Lord was instituting this ordinance, he tells them that he will eat again. He won't eat this again until he comes. There it is. Verse 18 of Luke 22. I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Um, and in verse 16, I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Well, perhaps you could say that he would have observed that during his time after the resurrection. Uh, but there's probably a, a looking in the Lord's Supper and keeping the Lord's Supper. There is also a looking forward to the fulfillment of all that Christ has accomplished. The not fulfillment, he's fulfilled all of it, but the the bringing to realization, maybe would be a way to say it. Um, he's paid for all of it. He's purchased all of it, but the kingdom is not yet here in its fullness. And one of the things that we will partake in is the marriage supper of the lamb. 
And uh, it could be that there is also a use of the Lord's Supper and that you're looking forward to the coming feast with the Lord, the um, coming reunion with the Lord, the kingdom that is coming. And so you're looking at not just his death, but also um, what he purchased in his death, which is us, but also the kingdom. So those would be the sanctifying uses of the Lord's Supper as I see them out of 1 Corinthians 11. I've covered a lot, so is there any questions or comments about what we've talked about? Because we've kind of been everywhere. We've been in church history. We've been several parts of the New Testament. Just maybe a comment. I like what you said about it looking forward. You can kind of see that almost even explicitly kind of mentioned in kind of the way that we celebrate Lord's Supper. We do it till he come. So there's that almost explicit reference of, mm-hmm. you know, this is a, not just a looking back, but also a looking forward, mm-hmm. which is neat. Yeah. Could you summarize what he just said? I couldn't quite hear him. Yeah, he says that in, in 1 Corinthians 11 that you proclaim the Lord's death till he come. So there is a looking forward, an expectation of his coming. That's just built into the liturgy that we have right in the text there. John 6.51 gives us some food for thought. You read it? Yep. Or I can if you'd like me to. Yep. John 6.51? Yeah, 6.51. He says, the Lord Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Yeah, so there's that reminder in partaking of the elements of the Lord's table of him giving his flesh in order to save the world. Yeah. Right. Yep. Maybe I betray my position here a little bit. Um, I am more inclined to think of the Lord's Supper in a more reformed sense, um, at least to a certain degree. So you are saying that the primary purpose of it is, um, I'm trying to say it the same way that you did it, but it's a remembrance mm-hmm. of the Lord. So in what way would you say that that remembrance is different than uh, someone sitting and listening to the preaching of it audibly. Um, so I guess put different, how is that remembrance different in the, the preaching and the listening and the, the visual partaking in, of it in that sense, if that makes sense at all? Yeah. Um, the, from what I understand, the... I think the the memorial view and the reformed view are very close. the The difference would be on, um, from what I again, from what I understand, I just the reformed view is there is so much on it that just to try to like figure it out and get my hands around it was really difficult. No, it's what's called the spiritual presence view, and it um, would say that there is a there's some kind of mystical impartation of um, of saving grace, I'm not saving, of, of sanctifying grace that the Holy Spirit is applying to His people, 
in the observance of the Lord's table. Um, and so Christ is spiritually present um, with his people in these elements. Um, and everybody, it sounds like of the Lutherans, the Reformed, and um, which is kind of the, the regular Baptist view, the, the memorial view, everybody is committed to there being a memorial, like that is key to the Lord's Supper, that you're remembering him. Um, I think the difference is probably in the activity by which you're remembering him, primarily. Um, and I, I would agree with the Reformed that it's, that there is a, that there's sanctifying uses of this, that you are being sanctified in the observance of this. Um, but to, to take, to kind of push beyond the fact that the sanctifying use of it in the text seems to be primarily in where it is leading, what it is leading you to think about. Not in the sanctification being from the activity, right? Um, and not to, not to mischaracterize the reform too much there, because they wouldn't deny the fact that your mind is being turned to the Lord. Uh, but it seems like they would kind of tack on some stuff beyond that. So I'm a little leery of that. But I'm not, when I read Calvin's um, statement here, where he says, it reminds us that he was made the bread of life, which we continually eat, which gives us a relish and a savor of that bread. It causes us to feel the power of that bread. It assures us that all that Christ did or suffered was done to quicken us. And again, that this quickening is eternal. We being ceaselessly nourished, sustained, and preserved through life by it. So he's there. He's really emphasizing the remembrance aspect. Um, so... I just don't know how to make sense of the idea that there's a nourishment in the eating of this in some kind of spiritual, mystical way as well, that I'm not sure about that. I was, I was, it's funny that you were talking about it. I was listening to or reading uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones about it last night, so I keep hearing his voice in my head about the, the Catholic view that it's uh, grace in solution is the, the idea of dissolved grace. Right. But um, we, we can talk about it more offline. Yeah, yeah. I don't think the the sanctification happens in the like specifically in the observing. This would be kind of that's kind of where the Catholics got wrong. Their their concept is it's I think the Latin phrase is ex opero operato, and that means by the works performed. And so if I just do this, then I'm getting grace. But there has to be an an engaging of your of your your mind and your faith in the taking of it. Um, and the reform guys emphasize that too, which I appreciate. Um, there's a difference so. between touchy feeling and thinking. I mean, I think the thinking is both both of them, but in the one having a little more touchy feeling. Yeah, I mean, if you can if you can uh, classify the reform as being touchy feely, I would I'd apply that to the Pentecostals probably more. Well, but, uh, <laughs> but, I mean, but I think it's. I think it's sneaky, isn't it? Yeah. I think it, yeah. They're comfortable with uh, with like uh, the mysterious in a way that uh, seems to me a little more cut and dry out of the text. But then again, I'm, I could partake of the Lord's Supper um, with my Reformed brethren and be just fine. 
so that's not a problem. <laughs> yeah. Any other comments or questions? I was raised in a Lutheran church, and I've learned more about the doctrines or whatever of the Lutheran church since I've been saved than I learned when I was there. Okay. I didn't. I didn't know what the position was. We just went through, you know, you just go through the liturgy and you go through and you do things. And they didn't really teach, they didn't teach scripture. I mean, they, I'm, some of them probably do, but mm -hmm. the one I was in. Because somebody asked me a while after I was saved what the Lutheran Church believed about communion and used those terms. And I I didn't know, didn't right. have an answer for that because they didn't ever really... Promote we observed it. We just <laughs> observed it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The Lutherans, it's it's funny not to not to cast too much uh, dispersion on them or whatever the phrase is, but um, sometimes they're like the cousin where you're not sure like what branch of the family to put them with because like sometimes they look really Catholic, sometimes they look really Protestant. Like I'm not sure where to go with this. Um, yeah, but that consubstantiation view. Like Luther kicked, you got to appreciate him for kicking the door down and recovering the gospel. But did he go all the way um, that he should have in everything? No. But really appreciate him for what the Lord did do through him. And uh, there are a lot of views he had where he'd say, well, we need to keep reforming beyond that one. Um, and that's probably where we'd sit with the reformed as well a little bit. Um, but appreciate them for how the Lord used them, and then go to your Bible. Uh, we're out of time, so let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, considering these truths out of your text, and as we just consider where your text would lead us regarding the observance of your uh, the, the table you provided for us and the communion elements, we, we praise you for, the, especially the reminder that it is for the work that you accomplished on the cross for us, that you willingly suffered and bled and died uh, in our place in order to save us and fully atone for our sins. We praise you, Lord. Uh, equip us to worship you in the coming hour. In your name, amen. <laughs>